Hey everyone, before we begin this episode, we wanted to let you know that the banter that we talk about at the beginning of the episode between Rachel and I covers a topic of trauma and a student experiencing some trauma. So if that is something that you'd rather skip, uh, we invite you to move about 20 minutes forward in the episode to get to the interview portion. Uh, If you would like to listen, you're of course invited to. That's why we put it out on the podcast or you can skip ahead. We just wanted to let you know that it is a heavy topic at the beginning of this banter. Welcome to Talking With Tech. My name is Chris Bouguet, and as always, I'm here with Rachel Madel. Rachel, what's going on in your world? Ugh, Chris, I just came from a pretty heavy parent coaching session. Coaching session? Pretty heavy? I mean, that sounds exciting. I mean, coaching a parent sounds like a... Um, well, I don't know. Tell me, what does heavy mean? So I'm going to share, and I have permission to share, actually, right at the end. I was like, I'm about to go to a podcast recording, but I really want to talk about this. And this mom has been so awesome throughout. I've been working with this family for, I guess, seven years now, long time. And um, this mom has always been such a great showcasing of leading with sharing. And she's always been really open to sharing her journey and sharing, um, you know, more public facing. And I feel like it's such a, I understand that not everybody feels comfortable with that and that's totally okay. But for the families and the people that do, it just is so helpful to help people understand, you know, what's going on with their children to help learn, to help, you know, feel connected, to feel not alone. Like there's just so many benefits to sharing. And so, um, I just love this family and they've been so wonderful, um, throughout my career and just leading with sharing. Can I just interrupt here? I want to get to the story, but I just want to say, I so totally champion that notion on two fronts. One that, um, I am so appreciative of the parents that do share either, you know, not even on this podcast, just out into the ether, um, sharing your story really, really, I, I think it might be the most powerful message for other families to hear. I mean, I was literally having that conversation with a speech therapist today where I was like, you can show them all the research and you can show them um, all the all the strategies from all the other therapists. It's hearing it from another family that's probably the most powerful, you know, so we have to do connections. But then the second thing is how rewarding it is when you do get to share, because you have to think through your own thoughts and think through your own, um, what what do I really think about this? What message do I want to say? And just that process helps solidify your own confidence and knowledge in your skills. So I just totally champion that whole notion. Please continue. Okay. Yes, completely. Um, so I, like I said, I've had a long history with this family. Um, this story is about their son who is 13, autistic, non-speaking and an AAC user. And this student has been through a lot. Um, they suffered, um, abuse in their school district or a couple of years ago. And it was a whole kind of process kind of uncovering that. And they got out the other side of that. But there's obviously some some repercussions that have happened since that incident and multiple incidences of abuse. And so what that's looked like has been a lot of behaviors and a lot of um, challenging behaviors, a lot of dysregulation, a lot of um 
you know, stress, like this student is very stressed with new environments and new people. And, um, and so that's kind of the, the background is this, this, uh, trauma that was experienced in childhood has now translated into just a lot of challenges with behavior that therefore challenges participating in school. And they've been through, you know, different schools that focus on behavior and, Long story short, um, the kind of this is all kind of come to a head in um, the medications that they're trying. And, you know, some families have tried different medications and I'm sure a lot of families who have, they understand how delicate a process this is when we're working with medications that can, you know, change moods and change you know, your whole body. And then on top of it, adding in, I don't have all of the communication skills always at my fingertips to be able to communicate what's happening in my body. I also don't necessarily have the interoception skills to understand what's happening in my body. And so it's kind of this like cocktail of a situation that can just be really difficult to navigate. And so the student has been kind of, they've been trying different medications and there have been a lot of side effects of these medications to the point where it had gotten so extreme that they had to take the student to the hospital and the emergency room just because there were such severe behaviors and aggression that the family didn't know what to do. And this family is very experienced with behaviors and aggression just because of everything they've experienced. Um, And so he eventually was admitted to a child psychiatric unit He has been, his first stint there, I think, was 15 days in this child psychiatric unit. And then they sent him home and, you know, they sent him home home prematurely because the medication still wasn't figured out. And then there was such extreme aggression and behaviors that they had to go back to the emergency room. And he's now back in the child psychiatric unit. And all along, I've been coaching this, this mom on how can we help support communication in this environment? And, you know, when I got on, Chris, I was like, you're like, are you okay? And I'm like, I'm really not. Because to hear this mom's, and I'm going to like get emotional, but to hear this mom's account of how her son is being treated in this hospital is just inhumane. Like it's horrific. Like he's being restrained on a bed. He, you know, at one point was taking all of his clothes off and they just keep citing everything as non-compliance. But, you know, mom goes and like gets one hour to visit with him and she touches his skin and she's like, he's hot. And of course, one of the side effects of this medication is, you know, dysregulation and body temperature. And so he's just trying to like cool down. You know, they're not using his AAC. His AAC isn't charged. You know, they're they're scared of him. They're scared to go into the room. So he's getting no social interaction. He's locked in the room. They put food and then they leave. So he's like off to like fend for himself. He doesn't have access to the bathroom. So he is like, you know, wetting himself and like taking his clothes off because they're soiled. I mean, it's just like, to hear kind of how he has been treated in this situation has just been heartbreaking. It's just been really heartbreaking. And, you know, I can only imagine how heartbreaking that must be to a parent who is witnessing this and has no real control over what's happening and can't be there. Like they're not allowed to be there. They have visitation rights for like an hour, max two hours a day, and that's it. And so it's just like to have to you know, hear this and to like not be able to 
support and like help and train. And it's just like, it's so, it's so challenging. So the staff at this hospital is, they're not looking for support from anyone else. They're not, they're not reaching out to being like, well, this kid clearly has a history and people have been working with him. What has worked and what has not worked. There's no, uh, I mean, the, the, the giant word that's jumping into my head right now from you telling this story is trauma informed practice, right? So it seems like this, this hospital is not leaning into trauma informed practice. They're not trying to do Well, I don't know what they, they are or not are are not doing but it doesn't seem like they're corresponding with you at all who could inform them about what to do or what not to do and like this mom this mom has gone above and beyond i mean she has you know posted signs saying like please have his aac charged and with him so he can communicate um you know here's exactly what to say when you need him to get dressed when you need him to you know give his hand for you know the blood pressure you know all the things she's gone above and beyond and it's just like they're not they're not even taking his vitals can I, I need, I need to ask a clarifying question if it's okay and maybe you can't answer this or maybe you can can the mom just pull him out? I don't understand why yes, he needs to but be he, there. But here's the catch-22, Chris, is that his the levels of medications he's on and the tinkering around with the medications has has transformed him so outside of his normal disposition that he's having such serious self-injurious behaviors that it's like, I mean, he's banging his head on the wall to the point where it's bleeding. Like, it's just like, so they need to manage this medication because the managing of the medication is what's going to help get him in a place where he's not having all of these extreme psychiatric side effects of these psychiatric medications. And she like the parents just feel stuck because they're like, we can't, they already tried to take him home. They had him home for 10 days and it was so extreme. And so that's how he ended back. Right. And so they had to go back to the hospital and they had to kind of get back in. Cause that was exactly my thought was like, just take him out. But it's like to the point where now it's just this like cocktail of med- medications and in order to give him the medications, they have to sedate him and give him like basically tranquilizers because they're just like, but but not because he couldn't take medications orally, but because they're not taking the time and energy to actually like be with him, to tell him what's happening. So every time, of course, they go in with these needles and he can't communicate and he doesn't know what's happening, like he gets fight or flight. And yeah, I'm sure he tries to get aggressive because he doesn't understand what's going on. It sounds like a horrible cycle, meaning that uh, let's say the med- medications, they do, let's presume that they get the cocktail right, the medica- medications right, and he does start to regulate, and then he doesn't have a way to communicate. So like it just in the instance where he's starting to feel hot, so he starts to take off his clothes and they say, oh, something else is wrong. So now we go in and we the actions that we're taking... Um, dysregulate him again as he's regulating and therefore maybe the medications were not working and so we need to make another adjustment and so it's just this cycle. Is there any chance of pulling the team together to talk about that? Well, yes, I think there is at some level, but the problem is in in, in hospitals, it's like this constant turnover of nurses and like so it's just like hard you know when you have nurses doing shift work who come in and but yes I mean I think that the the family has been really pushing for that and they have had some team meetings but it's just like 
I think at the end of the day, people don't understand how to support communication. They don't understand AAC. They don't understand nonverbal communication. Um, and they're just kind of looking at everything as extreme behavior, noncompliance. And it's just this vicious cycle where, you know, he he's stuck and he can't communicate what's going on or how he feels or what he needs. And because of that, they just are basically isolating him socially, not even, they're not even able to go in and take his vitals. Doesn't that feel like an important piece of monitoring medication changes is like vital signs. And so then the mom comes in and is like, here's how you do it. She like brought her at home stuff, like showing them exactly. Here's what I say to him. Here's how we do it. And so, but they, they just, I think are afraid of him and they just go in with tranquilizers to get the medication in and they're just not taking the time um i think just because they think well he's just like super severe behavior aggression and i don't know do you know what's happening in the times in between meaning the time uh it sounds like there's these moments where they go in and check on him and then there's moments you know where they're kind of waiting for the medication to take effect and i'm just wondering about like the hours in between those moments. Like if I think about a hospital, I think you, know, you go to the hospital and you lay in bed and you watch TV and that's what you do in the hospital. And that's why a lot of people like want to get out of there because it's not a very stimulating place. Um, do you have a sense of any sort of education, entertainment, something that would occupy his time? Because that also seems to be a very, at least the way you're sort of painting the picture is like, I, I'm totally picturing like him in a, room by himself, uh, maybe with a bed and, uh, I don't know, maybe that's it. You know, that's what I'm sort of sounds like. I mean, that's, that's exactly right. Like it's basically like solitary confinement. Like he's just like, no one's engaging with him socially at all because they're afraid of him. And so it's just like the only social interaction he gets is the one hour a day that his parents can come visit him. And, yeah. So I'm sure it's just like nerve wracking being in there and not having access to anything, just sitting in a room like and he has his AAC, but his AAC isn't always charged. And it's just like it's also heartbreaking because mom has gone in and seen like what he's been communicating with like the log and he doesn't always use the message window. So it doesn't track always, which is it was such an aha moment for me. I was like, I need to teach my kids how to use the message window because like in situations like this, thank God we have the ability to see what he's been communicating. And it's just like, I'm thirsty. I'm thirsty. I'm thirsty. I want mom. I want mom. I want home. I want home. Like, it's just like he is communicating with his AAC, but if he's in there by himself, no one hears it. Like no one's picking up on the communication that's happening, you know? I'm so sorry that I'm in like solve it mode now, you know, so I, I I apologize for that as opposed to just like listening mode. But can I ask, is there any chance uh, something that, st that struck me, as you said, people are not informed in how to do this, uh, like communication. And I thought maybe these people are not informed. Is there any chance that there's a different hospital that he could go to where they have more knowledge? We've had people on our podcast that we've talked to that work in the hospital that get communication, right? So, I mean, who I'm thinking of works in New York, right? So, and you're in Los Angeles. So, but 
it makes me think there's probably someone in a different Los Angeles hospital that gets it. You know what I mean? Or a different hospital altogether that gets it that I know trying to ferret those out or find those. But it's I mean, you work in Los Angeles. You might know the area or people listening might like are there other options of places that could be that that that, that they could take the this child to? Um, it's a good question, and I haven't asked that question. Um, I do know this is one of the most prestigious, reputable facilities um, and child psychiatric units, which is just... How did they get that notion? How did they get that moniker of being reputable <laughs> when this is happening? I know. I know. I think that this is like what you don't hear about, you know, like this is the kinds of things that you're just like, unfortunately, you don't know about it until you have to know about it. And then... It's just like, wow, like I can't like every time I talk to this mom, I'm just like in shock of like how it's like not even like they're not even using common sense, like just like basic stuff, you know. But part of the reason I wanted to talk about on the podcast was because, I mean, if this story doesn't showcase the need to teach self-advocacy and to teach, you know, all of these things that. We hope that kids never have to be in a situation where they can they have to communicate it. But to know that if they are, that they have the language in their AAC and the ability to do that. It's just like it's it's the one of most one of the most important things that we can do. Well, and you did that. Right. Clearly, he's saying, I'm thirsty. I want to go home. I want my mom. Uh, he's communicating exactly what he wants and what he needs. So we gave him that. It's now on the rest of society to actually listen <laughs> to what is being communicated. Uh, uh, it's frustrating and hard. Uh, and I'm sure everyone listening is also in solution mode. I have a feeling we're going to get a lot of comments on this. What if we did that? What if we did this? Um, and 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 parents reaching out to that parent saying um throwing them virtual hugs do you know like oh we feel for this um this situation because this feels like a time for the community to come together and say hospitals what are you doing you know um just this this is uh maybe a little bit of a stretch in this situation but just uh recently on the quiet listserv uh quality indicators for assistive technology listserv which is a for new listeners who haven't heard of that strat that uh, place before, it's just a listserv. You can go sign up, and it's all people that work in assistive technology have signed up there. Many have signed up there. You post a question, and then the hive mind goes in and gives you strategies and suggestions. Somebody posted in there just recently, like maybe a day or two ago, um, there's a neuroscientist that one of my clients went to and said that speaking, that using AAC will stop you from speaking. And the parents are thinking, believing this neuroscientist, what research do we have? And then the community launched into it. There's these long bunch of text, but here's this research, this research, this, 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 this. They mentioned our podcast because we just talked about it with the consensus app. Uh, Chris and Rachel just talked about it on Talking With Tech. Use that episode, right? So this whole barrage of strategies. How do we get the word out to hospitals and doctors and nurses? It feels like it's time community. It's time. Uh, it's well past the time um, so that nobody has to be put in this position ever again. I feel like I need to have this mom come on the podcast. I feel like I need to, cause I'm obviously just recounting the story that she shared with me, but I mean, this whole journey, I feel like should be showcased and yeah, like it's just not okay. And so how do we change it? Like, what do we do? Like, how do we inform medical providers about this? Just because 
it's just, I feel like it's the perfect demonstration of how misunderstood non-speaking individuals, you know, particularly autistic individuals are. Like, it's just so misunderstood. And so it's just, we need to come together as a community and just do better for this population. And I think it starts with just building awareness around what does it look like to be non-speaking, like all about, you know, neurodiversity and all of these things, um, I think are a step in the right direction, but I think just, yeah, I think I'm going to ask the mom on the podcast. I feel like it would be a really powerful episode and she obviously has learned a lot in, you know, her experience. And I think that listening to that and also, you know, helping to guide other families, um, who might be in similar situations would be really powerful. Yes. I think we should invite her on the podcast. I feel like I want to do something immediately, <laughs> you know, because it seems like this kid is the, the trauma that he, that this child has already experienced and now is, um, and it's not in, in this case, it doesn't seem intentional. It's like, it's definitely, uh, we think we're doing the right thing by doing this. Um, it's this unintentional trauma that is being, um, that this child is experiencing and, it seems desperate. Like, <laughs> mm. totally. No, I mean, exactly. I just, I mean, I feel like my hands are tied, which I think is the worst feeling to feel. And imagine the family, you know, imagine this family, how they just feel helpless. They're just kind of like, okay, we just have to keep him in this environment because we don't want him to get even more injured, even more hurt physically, you know? Um, but it's just, yeah. The medication dance is so hard. Like I've had so many families kind of going on different medications and off them and tinkering around. And it's just like, it's so challenging to kind of find the right dosing and to find something that works. And, um, so yeah, it's just like all these confounding factors just make it really, really hard. The last thing I maybe, I don't know if it's the last thing or not, but something I want to say too, is I, I wish the entire world could adopt the concept of, what's the least dangerous assumption? If the nurses came in and said, okay, what's the least dangerous assumption for this kid? They'd be thinking, hmm, all right, he's taking off his clothes. He's not protesting. He's not, uh, I don't know what he's doing, but I'm going to make the assumption he's not protesting. I'm going to make the assumption that he's hot because that's why he's taking off his clothes, right? And then if I had, if I came in with that notion, what's least dangerous, uh, what's, what's, what assumption am I making? I'm going to assume that he's doing that intentionally for an actual reason, then maybe I might be asking or thinking my actions might change, right? I might be thinking, okay, why do I take off my clothes? I take off a jacket when I'm hot. I put on a jacket when I'm cold. So maybe that's what's happening. That should be my first thought, not, hmm, he's being noncompliant in some way. I, uh, and if we could just get that, just that simple notion of what mindset are you coming into the situation with? that could move the needle in a big way. Exactly. What you're explaining, Chris, is coming in with curiosity. Like coming in curious about why students are doing the things that they're doing and trying to get to the bottom of it instead of assuming that you understand everything that's happening in front of your eyes. And, you know, obviously the least dangerous assumption comes in here. Um it's a dangerous assumption to just assume that 
kids are being non-compliant or behavioral or aggressive or whatever, like human beings, like, you know, there's a reason, there's a reason that we see these things. It's not, you know, it's not just random and it's not just because most of the kids that I've worked with in my career have wanted to connect socially, have wanted to, you know, do the right thing and if that's not happening, then there's a reason underneath it. And it's like, I feel like the really good educators and clinicians are the ones that are just curious to get to the bottom of what's going on, you know? Yeah. Curious with the leaning towards there's something up. It's not intentional, right? There's something that's causing this. I'm sure the nurses probably don't know the entire breadth of the backstory here that this student has trauma in the past that is informing, uh, influencing this student's actions now, you know? So, but what assumption do you make when you go into that room? So, okay, now I'm like, (laughs) I can see, uh, I'm feeling it in my chest. Like, right. So if, if, if Melissa came in right now, she'd be like, why are you so upset? Why is your face all flushed? (laughs) It's like, because Rachel just told this story and we want to do something about it right now, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. Well, I think what we can do, Chris, is I think we can have her on the podcast and I think that we can have her share her story. And I think that, you know, our community is going to embrace her with loving arms and lots of support and potentially some ideas. And, you know, maybe there's something that we don't know that's already out there. Somebody who's already doing this work or has done it in the past in their local hospital or facility or whatever. Um, so I think that that's the move that we can have her come on and share her experience. And then, I don't know, maybe we can come together and, and help figure something out. And maybe we can do some sort of education for nurses and doctors specifically. I know, like we said, we've had people on the podcast talk about that and, um, and maybe there's some more, I mean, not maybe, it clearly there needs to be more work done in that area. Um, so maybe that's some other things we can do is think about what else we can do to support hospitals. Because on this podcast, we talk mostly about, you know, schools and families at home. Uh, but there's certainly the larger community out there that we can inform. So share this podcast with your nurses, with your doctors, let them know that um, that there's a lot of work to be done. And to make the least dangerous, make the least dangerous assumption. Absolutely. Chris, what's our interview today? Well, the interview today is from someone named Aaron Marsters. And Aaron works in a, for the Department of Defense, actually, in the United States. But he's not in the United States. He's in Germany. And he and I have known each other for many, many years. So it's an interesting take. Again, we're talking about the struggle that we're having here, Right those same struggles are happening all over the world. And and Aaron talks about his work in trying to support people living overseas on, in his case, Germany, um, living on um, army bases and teaching them all about assistive technology and AAC and all the rest. So we talk all about uh, both assistive technology and AAC uh, for the Department of Defense over in Germany. Welcome to the Talking With Tech podcast. My name is Chris Fugay, and today I'm here with Aaron Marsters. Aaron, how's it going? Going great. How are you doing? Great, great. So let me do a quick introduction, and then you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Um, So Aaron, here's my general feeling about 
your relationship with me and my relationship with you, right? You and I have known each other. We've been um, for many, many years now. Uh, I think at some point, maybe you came up after a presentation and introduced yourself at maybe an ATIA, and we have floated, uh, orbited each other in um, in uh, in our circles and often have had conversations like after a session or in the hallways of ATIA where we're like, Oh, that guy, or at an ed camp, like that guy. Yeah, we are so like on the same page. We should spend more time together. And then maybe it's a few minute conversation as we're, like I said, in the hallway or at uh, um, like sometimes there's a restaurant or a bar at ATIA. And we might like talk for a few minutes in there, but then get pulled away. And I just was reflecting on it when we scheduled this interview. And it was um, like, I don't know that I've spent more than. 10 minutes talking to Aaron in any given stretch, you know? So first let me ask, is that fair? Do you feel like that's the same thing with me? And then let's fix it. Let's have this conversation yeah. today. No, you, you nailed it, Chris. Um, yeah, you, we've always been around uh, in the same circles. And, and I do have to say when I first started in my role as an assistive tech professional, it was your work that was that often through your books or through your original podcast that where you were kind of like my guiding voice. And we'll go over that in a minute. But, um, you know, I do work for Department of Defense Schools Education Activity. And so the one reason why we don't talk very much is I live in Germany. Uh, you know, so um, I do support uh, U.S. military connected families overseas. And we uh, with Dodia, we have nearly a, we have over 160 schools across three continents. And so my responsibility is I, I support about 25,000 students here in Europe. And I primarily support students in Germany. And so I'm, I'm housed and based out of Germany. And where, where we might see each other is uh, uh, an ATIA, a closing the gap, or just one of those few opportunities where I get back to the States to kind of fill up my bucket with a lot of professional learning. Well, that is exactly one of the reasons that um, I, when we were at, you were chatting, it was like, oh, you got to come on the podcast because it is a very unique position. So let's start with what's your background. Tell us a little bit about, you know, who you are and how you got into this and then how you ended up in this particular role. Okay, great. So way back when, when I was just an undergrad going to school for elementary and special education, uh, there was a student teaching program, a shout out to Northern Arizona University. And they said, hey, you can go to Europe and you can student teach. And so I thought, I'm going to backpack around Europe. I'm going to student teach. It's going to be a wonderful experience. And it was. I student taught here in Germany at a Dodia school. It was terrific. I taught first grade and then I taught special education at a high school. And then I went back to the States to teach and severe and profound for a couple of years. Uh, in the meantime, met my wife. We got married. She was a military brat. We both knew about, you know, living life overseas. And we said, you know, let's throw our hat in the ring. Let's see where this takes takes us. And so we, we end up applying, we get accepted. Uh, we end up moving to the Northern part of Japan, Misawa, Japan, a big air force base up there. And I'm teaching uh, elementary special education. My wife's a first grade teacher. It's getting tons of snow. We're snowboarding on the weekends. We don't have kids. It's just this big grand adventure. And so we spend two years over there. And then um, we ended up transferring to Europe, to Germany. And we went on for about six or seven years. We were kind of on this closing base tour of Germany, where all these bases at that time were downsizing. So every two years, 
we were skipping around. And so I taught general education, elementary. I taught special education at the elementary school, middle school. Like I was just jumping around from mild to moderate to moderate to severe, just a, a just a, a mix of different experiences. And at the time I was working on my doctorate and um, the assistive technology position came open and I applied. And, you know, fortunately for me, I was able to, to get the position back in about 2010. And uh, from then on, I have been the assistive technology instructional system spe specialist for Dodia. Uh, with, I said, my focus is primarily Europe, but I have, uh, I'm happy to take on roles that have been supporting AT initiatives across our whole agency. What made you apply to the assistive technology position? I'm clearly in those positions you're using technology, but there's a a lot of teachers use technology, and then there's another tier that maybe say, "Oh, I want to go work in assistive technology." I was always that guy. So, you know, my first job, I was uh, severe profound at a high school level in Flagstaff, Arizona, and. All my students were using augmentative communication, alternate access. I was collaborating with my OTs, my PTs. I set up an engineering, uh, I had engineering interns coming in and doing project-based learning for their capstone projects who were collaborating. They were building stuff for my classroom. I just was always that guy that just loved the tech. I loved the access that it provided my students. And it was just something that it just, it seemed to go hand in hand. And so I went from that to then going to Japan and teaching, you know, little kids how to read. But again, then it shifted to access to, to like reading. How do we access books? How do we improve reading? How do we improve writing? And so I was always integrating that, uh, those technology pieces as part of ed tech and then assistive tech. And then for good or bad, I was always jumping around general ed for a couple of years, which really get, got me deep into ed tech, which I then thought I felt helped my street cred and my credibility when I went back into special education and vice versa. So I've always been walking this world of ed tech and assistive tech. And um, it just, when I was working on my doctorate, uh, I had a professor come up to me and say, you know, this is really your passion. This is your area. I, I really feel this is your area of research and this is your area of focus. And um, so I ran with it. Um, I ran with it through my dissertation. I ran with it through my studies. And um, I just kind of embraced this idea that, um, it's I'm, I'm the AT guy. I'm the I'm the tech guy. Uh, so what is your doctorate in? It is in education leadership, special education leadership. But uh, because the University of Maryland, I was able to really focus in on what is it that I want to study? What is it that I want to research? And so every project that I had was always related to uh, assistive tech. I always was, was filtering it back to uh, access and then uh, part of that with the ed tech thing or with ed, uh, with the ed leadership component is I've always been looking as the assistive technology role, especially within DoDEA as, you know, capacity building. What can I do as a leader? You know, I see myself part service provider as I'm, I'm working with students, I'm working with educators, but I also see myself as what am I doing to build the capacity of the agency to broadly meet the needs of students through UDL, through assistive tech, through accessible ed tech, you know, um, just how do I make that happen? Yeah. All right. So how do you make that happen? <laughs> Can you, so let's just for the acronym, what is DODIA? DODIA, Department of Defense Education Activity. Okay. okay. And so um, I'm going to try and think, I'm going to try and describe this and you tell me what I get right and what I get wrong. Okay. So there are um, military bases from the United States all over the world, one in Germany. Um, and there are uh, people that go and work in those bases and those people have kids and those kids need to learn. So they go to uh, classes and schools that are 
on the bases? Yeah, so let me paint let me paint a picture. We have military yeah. bases overseas, uh, army bases, air force bases, naval bases, and within that base, it could be in Italy, it could be in Spain, it could be in Germany, the UK. There's your your McDonald's, there's your Taco Bell, there's your US school, there's your US little shopping mall area, there's your US facilities and there it's all designed to support the US military mission overseas. And so on those military bases, we're using U.S. dollars. We're using American credit cards. We're, you know, it, it's little America in the middle of a foreign country. You walk off the base and all of a sudden somebody's speaking a foreign language. You're now switching over to a foreign currency. So, um, so yes, we have the military members, our primary um, uh, you know, stakeholders with their families, and they are usually over for about three years at a time. So we have a highly mobile population that kind of rotates through every three years. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so it's a, we have a great, great communities with our military family members. We have terrific civilians that come over to, um, to live and work overseas to support these families. And it's just a really, uh, it's a, it's a terrific organization. And, they, and we do a lot to support that the military mission so that the, the military members can do their job knowing that their families and their children are taken care of. Mm -hmm. I have uh, family members, particularly my wife. Uh, so I married into it. Um, my, my wife uh, has an uncle that has been in the military for years and, um, did exactly what you said, three year stints in different places. And so when you say there's this sort of um, uh, a little, uh, I almost picture it like a small town, if you yeah. will. Um, so there's a school there. And so the mm -hmm. kids would go to school for those three years. And when you maybe move to another location, they go for another three years in another mm -hmm. location. Hence that term army brat that you said, or military brat, right? Yeah. Like that, that term of your wife. Um, so uh I, then I would imagine just like any other school, there's a population of kids that have disabilities. And that's where you're coming in, helping with the building the the, the inclusively designed experiences. And you're supporting the teachers on those in those schools, uh, just like um, I might be supporting teachers in a public school here in Virginia. Exactly. We are still you know, following IDEA, you know, we're still considering assistive technology for students. We're still looking at augmentative communication. We're still looking at access. And so all these things are still in place. Uh, out of necessity, we had to go to a capacity building model because I am the assistive technology specialist for Germany. You know, so I have schools down in Bavaria. I have schools, you know, uh, near France. So I have schools all over the place. I can't be the gatekeeper for assistive tech. You know that I ever not that I ever want to be the gatekeeper for assistive tech. Mm -hmm. So um, I've always been working with how do we build up our teachers, our special educators, our general education teachers, our support staff, SLPs to be able to effectively consider and implement assistive technology at the lowest level. And I don't want to say lowest level, at the most important level, at the school level. And so, and then of course, if they need help, support, logistics, I'm always there, but I, I'm always looking at what are we doing to build up those educators and those SLPs and related support staff so they can do their jobs. Awesome. All right. So let's talk about that. So, um, cause it, so it sounds like very similar challenges is that, um, I work in a large geographical area and it's like, well, how do we get all these teachers on the same page and on, on board? Sounds like you're wrestling with the same things. How many years have you been doing this now? 
2010. So I kind of feel that was a fun time to enter the field of assistive technology formally, because that was right around, I was kind of think we were the start of a pendulum shift, you know, where iPads were just coming out. And I still remember AAC was just a one-off thing. Everybody was using paper communication boards, but core boards were still kind of a new thing. And this idea that, that AAC was something that could be a systemic intervention for students was something that was still pretty abstract to people. And I still remember like, you know, even for our students with learning disabilities, software was that one-off thing that was in the corner of a classroom. It was very much. And then I want to say 2010, that pendulum really started shifting with the advent of mobile devices. And then we started having more cloud-based solutions and more robust opportunities online. And I feel like it was such a fun time to come on board because um, I could see it. Like when my first, I reflect back on my first year as an AT specialist to now, and I'm like, oh my goodness, what, what a difference, you know, 12, 13 years have made. Um, I, t- I could not agree more uh, in the framework or using the language of tier one, two, and three, like in this multi-tiered system of support. I think uh, 2010 is great is a great way of thinking about how that's when the pendulum really started to to switch, where people started to think, oh, tier three stuff could become tier one stuff, you know, um, and uh, and we can now that we know that that's sort of where we want to go, we can make that happen faster. We can push the triangle down from t- uh, from all the stuff that's living only in tier three down to tier one. So when you started working in this role. Um, what sort of shifts and sort of actions did you take to support and and make that happen faster? Well, fairly early on, we tried to go to um, a specific language system approach. It just seemed to make a lot of sense to me that I wanted I wanted AAC devices in the hands of students. Uh, we had uh, I was able to get a lot of great access to iPads. You know, you know, initial AAC apps. Uh, but it was, to me, it always came down to implementation. I felt at the very beginning of my career, I spent all my time on operational skills for any tech. It was like, I could spend three days teaching a teacher how to just operate or an SLP, how to operate the thing. We never got to the fun stuff of implementation, of the strategies, of what it looks like. And again, I want to say that 2010 timeframe is when I really felt like things started shifting where, oh, I don't have, I can, I can teach you the operational competencies within a half hour. Now let's get into the good stuff. But I felt like everybody needed to be speaking the same language. And because we didn't have a lot of access to AAC before overseas, because we had limited access to vendors, you know, uh, people moving around so much and, you know, and follow up with insurance. So I kind of felt like we were starting from a blank slate. And, and so for me, I was like, okay, let's, let's start putting, if we have a kid that has, that has complex communication needs, has basic access act, you know, is able to access the device effectively, let's start just providing quality AAC, robust AAC, and really focus on that implementation component. And if we're struggling, then let's look at different options. Or if a kid comes in with a different system, of course, let's accept that different system. But from from an early stage, it just, to me, it just made sense that I was hearing the teachers and the SLP said going, I can't learn five different languages. Okay, well, let's start out with, let's become fluent in this one. And then as a cool side note, as I've seen as the the educators and SLPs have become more comfortable with our primary AAC system, they've been asking me like, hey, we want to try others now. Like I'm fluent in that one. I'm ready cognitively and, and, you know, to, to like push myself and learn other languages. And I'm not having to push it on them. They're the ones seeking me out going, okay, 
I want, let's teach, I'm ready to turn that other language. I know German, I'll give me French. Or I know AAC language one, let, let me do AAC language two. So, so it's been great. That sounds so exciting. And that has been my consistent experience with, with, with me as well, is that, oh, once I know how to do this well, now what's more? Give me more. Give me more, right? Uh, that's awesome. How did you decide on what your first system was going to be? And let me explain. Some people that I've talked to have said, we, we don't have anything, so we're going to pull a team together and we're going to do sort of a, a mass feature matching experience where we uh, uh, we put up a chart and we figure it out about what we think is going to meet the most needs. Other places have said, well, we did a an inventory of what's being out there used already and this particular system came to the top. So he said, why buck that trend? If that's working, then let's lean into this thing how did it work for you so we started out early enough with the ipads that there, there were a ton of options but i would say there weren't a lot of robust options at the time and and so proloco was the the top option at that time and so that's what we went with we bought a ton of licenses but then after a few years it seemed like we had some different robust aac options that started coming up and, I, and chris to your point we we then kind of did a feature match of what are what are people what are other systems that are people you people using what are effective uh you know medical devices that are being out there what where are we sending these kids if they're effective with this device where do they go next to, if we're going through insurance and so we started really looking at uh, lamp words for life as as kind of our next and as core words were really coming on board at that time um, and then to be fair to Proloco, Proloco version one to where they are now is significantly different. I mean, that they, they've grown night and day, but they were kind of in that growth stage. And so we, we then kind of transitioned more to LAMP. And I would say that a good portion of Dodia is, is LAMP literate as mm -hmm. our tier one. But then there's still some pockets that because they grew up on, on Proloco, they're using Proloco. We're now kind of throwing touch chat into the, you know, or TD, excuse me, TD snap into the mix, uh, you know, is just as a, you know, making more robust options available. And I said, as more as the staff are becoming more fluent in these options, you know, giving some agency to the SLPs and to the teachers to then, you know, find the language that they want to be fluent with and then being responsive to the students and how they're interacting and responding and what kind of language samples and communication are we seeing from that quality implementation. Aaron, let me ask a clarifying question here. You said earlier that it's you're the person for Germany, right? Mm -hmm. But then you're using the pronoun we, like we decided. So is it um, did you pull a team together? How did how did you? We there there are different AT specialists. We have about three or four of us within the agency. So that was the the core group, and then we did uh, you know pull different SLPs, go into ATIA and different things like that helped. Uh, so it wasn't a unilateral decision, but it, but it really was trying to look at where do we want to go with this? What makes the most sense for us at that time? And so, um, so yeah, it's, it's been a good, and then for me, uh, when I say we, I actually like it. So I'm not a licensed speech language pathologist. I'm an educator by trade. So when we do AT reports or AAC evaluations, I have to have that school SLP on board with me. I have to have them writing that report with me. I have to have them signing that report with their C's if we're going to get any kind of funding for a device. And so I, I have found that that has actually been really beneficial for me because people can't just push it off and say, oh, the AT guys here, the AAC guys here, deal with it. I'm going, no, I, I, need, I need this to be a team process.
Mm -hmm. So awesome. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, so something that you also said, let me ask how you, um, well, I have multiple questions, but let's start. You got to get to the fun stuff with implementation, right? So now we've got a tier one tool and we got a system in place where if that tier one tool is not working or, or we know it's not going to work, I can work with the team of educators to help them figure out what something more specific and how to tweak something if need be. Um, what is your professional learning look like to focus more on implementation um, as opposed to those operational skills? So we've, we've taken some systemic approaches of making things like AAC Language Lab available. So any, any AAC user that, that enters, my, enters our schools, I give the team at least one or two licenses of AAC Language Lab. We go through what stage do we think, what stage learner do we think this child is? Let's go over some of the activities. Let's go over some of the lessons. I think the vendors, I'm really just amazed with how well the vendors have kind of shifted from operationals. They still have the operational tutorials, but it seems like every vendor now has their own you know, AAC implementation strategies and ideas and resources. And so highlighting those as well. Um, we do, um, you know, we do some, some modeling, you know, we're, we're really big into, you know, aided language modeling. So providing some coaching with that, uh, you know, really trying to get the SLPs on board. We've had vendors come over, um, you know, the Lamp Words for Life people have come over and done trainings for us here in Europe. So just trying to build capacity as much as possible using online resources. And because I'm so spread out and because I'm looking at a, at a kind of a systems level, I don't want to just buy or share a resource with one educator or one SLP. If it's good for that team, I'm going, okay, how can we build this to scale? How can I have this available for everyone? And then we're trying to, we're, we're still in growth, but you know, using collaborative tools like say Teams, putting all of our, our SLPs on a team and preschool teachers into a team where they can chat, hey, let's share resources. What are some successes you're having? What are some problems you're having? And so somebody from the Pacific can be talking and collaborating with somebody from Europe and somebody from Europe can be talking to somebody. Or if I come up with a good data sheet or somebody else, we can post it in one location and it's there. You know, also trying to put things together on a central web page where we're all using you know, some the same information and the same resources and the same tutorial videos, because I just I hate recreating the wheel. Again, if it works, let's use it across the board. Oh, my gosh. Can I come work with you? <laughs> it sounds so <laughs> awesome. Right. I mean, everyone, it, the paint, the, the picture that you're painting is a is a very collaborative uh, uh, ex professional experience where you can um ask questions, share resources, maybe fail a little bit and get feedback on how to do better next time. Um, it sounds really awesome. I mean, uh, does that sound fair? Is that what you feel like the, the most people, if we were interviewing a teacher right now that's in that, do you think that's what they would say? That's a dream. That's what I like most of them to say. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, do we have, do we have difficult situations? Of course, there's always, I mean, I think that's part of it. As you mentioned, we have to have room to fail. We have to have room to try, but I'd rather fail forward and be able to analyze that and say, okay, what can we do differently? I don't want people to fail out of, out of fear or out of just uh, not knowing what to do. Okay. Let's figure it out. Let's try. And uh, we do have a fairly mobile staff. And so just like our, ed uh, our students, um, that seem, but I think that's education in general right now. You train up a teacher, you train up a team, you get a quality group of paraprofessionals and everything's running smooth. 
And then boom, it's all gone the next year and you're, you're back at square one. So that's where it might look kind of rough for that, for the going back, back a few steps. But if you have all those other supports in place, again, at least you're not starting from scratch and you can then make, make steps to move forward. Aaron, that's actually where I wanted to go is one of the other questions I had is that, um, before we were talking about how generally, I, I know there's variations, but uh, I think there's variations, but um, that, you know, okay, you're in a three-year stint, and then you think about where you're going to go for the next three years. Maybe you stay for another three years in the same location, but maybe not. Maybe you're moved to a different base. So that seems to me parallel, like what you were just refer referencing, is that I get to be in middle school in a public school in America for three years, and then, boom, I move on to another whole new team of new people, and they might not have the same level of knowledge. Knowledge, hence that uh, or experience, hence that capacity building uh, model. What has what have you found has been helpful um, in keeping the continuity of of le learning language, the continuity of assistive technology st strategies related to um, ed tech, all of it? How do you provide a somewhat consistent continuity of education? We've been working really hard on this and um, what I, and I think it's a growth area for us and it's, it's that continuity of resources. It's, it's having a systems lens approach. So going back to just ed tech and uh, our high incidence disabilities, it's when we're buying curriculums, are we buying curriculums with built-in accessibility features? That's universal. We know teachers are expected to use approved curriculum. So with that, are they, are they using the stuff that's built in? Are students using Chromebooks or Windows computers? Are all our teachers aware of the accessibility options within those? You know, speech, everybody wants speech recognition. You know, everybody wants text-to-speech. Well, okay, um, let's show you how that works within the operating system, making use of, you, of tools like Read and Write for Google, you know, more cloud-based solutions. So when the built-in accessibility features aren't working, do we have external tools that are systemic across our agency that can be used? Do we have consistent guidance on our AAC devices? And, you know, are we gatekeeping or are we providing quality, e easy access to it? Then we're really working hard on that implementation using consistent resources. Or can teachers expect and can families and parents expect that these are kind of our first line interventions? But if they come in with something completely different that's working for the kid, do we have clear expectations that we say to that family, Great. It's a it's a pleasure to have you and your child here. Let's learn about this AAC system and let's let's find some success. Um, so I, I want to I kind of go back to that original framework of what if it's good for one school, if it's one, good for one program, how are we building up those resources so that it's available to everyone? Awesome. Oh, man, Aaron. Yes. So, again, this sounds so much like in my mind. We're talking to you in our shoulder conversations at ATIA, and I, I knew we had um, similar outlooks and similar approaches to how we build capacity. Um, but I sort of also created a fiction in my head that um, DODIA has got to be so different, radically different than public schools. I mean, you're in Germany, I'm in Virginia, it's, but it really sounds super similar. <laughs> You know, we have, you know, so we're very fortunate with a lot of, we have great ed tech, we have a lot of access to, to terrific resources, but some of our, you know, the struggles that we have as a federal agency, you know, we're, we're a military base, we're on a military network. So you think about, you know, think about working with IT 
on security. And they're all about enterprise solutions. And so that's one reason why I do try to have enterprise solutions for accessibility, because they really, it's a challenge to have one-off options for kids. Because as a, as a federal agency working in a very secure environment saying, I want to be able to access this website and this, this thing and that thing and that thing, they'll do it, but it takes a lot, it's a lot of hurdles, you know? So, so how do we, and then if I spend all my time doing those one-offs and I don't have any fun, I don't have any time for the fun stuff. So I try to build up as much as possible buying things over here and then having it shipped across slow boat across the Atlantic. So um, you know, we, I had a part on a wheelchair break. The, the wheelchair is only sold in the U S oh goodness. That's a, that's a two month process to get, uh, you know, to, to get something shipped over here. So we do have some hurdles, but then we also have some amazing opportunities and that, you know, you, the kids for spring break are all talking about going down to Italy or, you know, going on a cruise across the med or down the med, or, you know, they're going to London and Paris and all these places. So, you know, every, there's not a perfect place and we definitely have our challenges, but I also feel very blessed uh, to have the experiences of living overseas and supporting the, our, our military connected families. Um, Aaron, so one of the last questions I like to ask in interviews is what has been, uh, what have you been questing after? What's got, what's picking your curiosity bone, you know, um, you know, very curious professionally, uh, clearly with, uh, working on your doctorate and, and, and interested in many things. What's got, what's, what's tickling your fancy currently? Oh, Chris, artificial intelligence. My, my brain is just swimming in possibilities. I kind of feel like, again, I remember the first time I ever got on the internet. You know, I remember the first time holding a tablet and I kind of feel like we're, we're at that, that inflection point right now where, oh, where were you the first time you did something with generative AI or, you know, and, and that's, that's where my brain is right now. And I'm really thinking at about the lens of, of AAC specifically because I just see the potential for it to be a, a rate enhancer for, you know, so I'm looking at like chat GPT or these large language models as a translator for AAC. And so I've even played around with some of the prompts of, okay, you are an AAC device and I speak only in core words. I'm going to give you a scale of context from friendly to serious and from take no liberties, don't add any words to my message to to a scale of like one to five, five, take extreme liberties and add and add as much as you want. So things like uh, want play or I like, or eat now, or cool, cool hat, you know, depending on whatever I say with the core words, it then translates it into, to, uh, to different messages based off of that sliding scale. So you can have it, you change it on the, the tone of the message and the complexity of the message based off of what you want. I think there's some cool things there. <laughs> Yeah. Have you shown it to anybody? Have you tried it? Uh, no, them? I'm still, I'm still, well, <laughs> well, that's the thing with chat GPT and a lot of the AI stuff is it's a great educator tool, but with the age limits right. and with some of the privacy concerns, you know, we need some adults or we need some families that are willing to kind of pioneer it because uh, at the, at the school level following, you know, some of the, some of these rules where we're limited in how we need some researchers out there, or we need some of these AT vendors to, you know, put it on the back end where, where we can then vet the privacy and the security of some of these tools and how that information is going to be used. Mm -hmm. Um, I was just playing with a cool AI app, uh, 
AI feature the other day where it turns on, you know, like a smart speaker, it listens to you. And then it's, it creates awesome notes. It summarizes everything that was said. It gives you highlighted notes. Well, what if, what if on your AAC device, it listened to the responses and then under like a quick fire, it gave you potential options for responses. I never want to go away from core words and fringe and be able to have a unique generative language specifically to what somebody wants to say. Mm -hmm. But I love the idea of having the freedom or the agency for an individual to go, yep, that's what I want, or, or to, to kind of have some sort of more scale to make, you know, to increase that efficiency. Yeah. I mean, Aaron, what you're talking about, I think is the future. Uh, and when I say the future, like a year from now, yeah. <laughs> you know, like the immediate future, because um, for those that haven't played with ChatGPT yet, let me just explain. I use it on the daily, like uh, I have to write a paragraph or create something, I will go and write the prompt, take that, uh, it'll create that paragraph for me, and then I'll edit the heck out of it to make it sound like Chris Bouguet. So yes, did it, it generated and I added to it. And I hear that's sort of what you're suggesting yeah. is a possibility for AAC users is, look, it, it gave me something to start with. I'm going to maybe tweak it or not. Like maybe like close enough. Yeah, that's what, that's, that's what I would say in the same way that you're writing an email and at the bottom of the email or, or someone sends you an email and it uh, Google now will suggest like quick fire phrases that you can respond one click. Yep, thank you. That's what I wanted. Or, you know, they'll give you three suggestions that sort of idea on a, on a greater scale. And so on with chat GPT, now you can go into kind of your profile. And, and so you can set it up as I'm an AT professional who loves ed tech and working with students and families and educators. You know, I believe in gracious professionalism. You kind of describe who you are and what your, what your values are, and then it will adjust its responses based to you. So I'm thinking back to AAC. What if we spend more time with creating the student's profile? Oh, he loves Star Wars. Um, he's into Legos and his favorite food is this, this, you know, like if, if you're able to develop a profile within that AAC app, so then when it is making those generative suggestions, it's it's pulling that data from from that profile so that hopefully it's more customized to that user. And again, I'm not saying that this replaces our our core and our fringe and our ability to say what we want right. in our own words. But I want to I want to I want to see what happens when we give people options, and and I want users, you know, AAC users, to be to be able to chime in and say, no, that was a horrible idea, Aaron. Nope. <laughs> um, or or yeah, yeah, this this looks like this could be something that works. I just feel like there's so much potential there, and like you said, Chris, within a year, I just feel like we're on the brink of just some really interesting innovations in the field of education, assistive technology, ed tech technology in general with this, with all the AI. Yeah. And like you said, on the back end of some uh, an AAC company, or maybe some new company that works in the AAC space that takes a large language model and keeps it in a safe bubble, if you will, that's not touching other things. So you, it's always pulling from this bubble of words, uh, picture a cloud of, of, of words, um, millions of words, and it's pulling from this, but it, that it's, a, it, that, it's just the bubble. It's not touching other things and nothing else is touching it. So we don't have to worry about the data privacy. We don't have to worry about it being corrupted by somebody else or uh, a negative influence. Like you said, trained on who I am and what I wanted to do. Um, it feels like that's 
really we're really close to that we're like we're a sliver away from it yeah I, I agree and i think the only other thing i'd say to that is just that social acceptance component of if if people are starting to use more of those generative features to compose messages are people still valuing that what, what that person is saying or or no that was just that was just chat gpt telling me that or are they going to look at it and say no that was aaron telling me that and so i think you know we we need to I think there's there's a lot of things that have to be unpacked to make this successful, but I, I'm I'm looking forward to being part of that process to do it. You know. Yeah, Aaron, it's such an interesting question. Um, I'm currently on a committee where we're trying to generate the language to help educators figure out what to do with generative AI, and there's this sort of ethical question, right? Like. All right. Clearly, something we've said for a billion years and it's not going to change is cite your work, right? So did I use generative AI to create this thing? Yes. Uh, let me put that in the citations of whatever I'm creating, right? Um, but there's this other side, which is, well, if it's helped me create something and now you have the same experience... Do I have to tell you I cooked with a stove? Like, do I have to tell you that I drove here in a car? Like, why do I have to disclose? Why do I have to be transparent about that? It's sort of just maybe assumption now that I would be using it. And does it really matter? I, I'm the one who's deciding to share it with you, not um, how it's generated maybe doesn't matter. So it's an interesting time to be wrestling with those questions. It is. It is. It's exciting. And I just, I, I feel like we're on the verge of some, of some big shifts in education and assistive tech and access. And, and I'm hoping that the, the end result is we're going to have more individuals having uh, increased access and, you know, people motivated to do things are going to have the ability to do those things with all these new and amazing tools. Well, Aaron, I'm going to say it's I, that it's, it's people like you doing the work to make sure that that happens, that um, that will make that outcome become a reality. Because uh, something that I'm nervous about when it comes to generative AI is that it'll go the way of mobile technologies. I don't know uh, when it comes to learning, uh, when it comes to schooling. Let me not say, we definitely use mobile technologies for learning all the time. Anyone who has a mobile device uses it for learning all the time. When it comes to school, many of those devices are, especially middle school and high school, uh, come into this room, put it into jail. You're not. It goes in a uh, in a in a thing on the wall that was meant for little toy cars, <laughs> and now it's a cell phone jail. Um, and we've made the decision, not globally, but many places. That's sort of the trend: is put that thing away. And I want us to use that less. And, and so, where do we where do we live now? People not sure how to use that device. Um, so I want to make sure that uh, we're doing the work to make the outcome become uh, something that that learns from the mistakes of how we approached mobile technology. Is that fair? Yes, I think that's fair. And I think we've been grappling with that, like you said, for years of it's that whole mentality. Do you prevent access? Do you, do you use the lockdown browsers and do you stop people from accessing it? Or do you try to empower and educate and, and come up with more inclusive activities that can capture, um, you know, instead of rote, uh, you know, rote production, you know, using more creativity and, ex, you know, more explaining your thinking. And I, I do think there's, I think there's some growth there. I, and I think it is going to be a struggle and it is a challenge. Okay. How do we, how do we best leverage this to our students benefit? Um, but to your point of, if we lock it away, when they go home, it's unlocked. 
And when they enter the workforce, it's unlocked. And if we don't help our students and our, learn how to use these tools effectively, then I feel that we're doing them a disservice in the long run. I couldn't agree more. I feel so well said. Um, besides the AAC uh, and using generative AI for the AAC, what other applications have you been experimenting with or thinking about in the greater world of assistive technology? Well, I, so I'm going to jump, I'm going to keep in the AI, but move away from the generative AI and really think that text to speech, speech recognition, all those are becoming increasingly um, improved. You know, we're starting to get more speech samples from individuals with uh, non-standard, you know, phrasing and prose and, you know, dictation, articulation. And so I think it's becoming more accurate, less training. Our text to speech voices are becoming more natural. Uh, our ability, this idea that I can take notes by turning on the microphone and it's going to summarize and highlight and help me. So individuals with ADHD, fine motor issues, like I really, I really see that is, is being powerful. The AI is doing much better with eye tracking. Like I feel like we're on the verge with camera eye tracking or, you know, we're, I, I don't think it's going to be too long before that's just going to be a built-in feature of within a lot of devices for access or for helping us improve apps on like where are people getting hung up and tracking where people get putting their their gaze and then how can we use that information to then improve that design of that program or to provide some remediation or compensatory supports so um you know and then you know ultimately down the line we're, we're looking at different uh, brain interfaces you know there's some really cool stuff going on now where it just seems like the ai is taking some of our, the good things we've already had but that's been moving at a fairly snail's pace or it hasn't been accurate enough to be very uh uh, realistic in, in day, day in and day out situations. And it's making it work better, work faster, or it's improving at such incremental uh, gains that it might not be ready now, but let's check back in a year and see where they're at. Yeah. Oh, it's so exciting. So exciting. Can I say one other thing that um, uh, I think it could be used for both in AAC and beyond is providing feedback. So imagine having someone's permission to uh, record what they're saying on their AAC device, right? Or um, record what they're saying uh, and it's transcribed, right? Mm -hmm. Taking that language, bringing it into a generative AI tool and say, analyze this for me. What's missing? What words am I saying most frequently? Um, what goals would you set for me that I can improve on? Right. And it, it giving you those suggestions. We are, we're, we're there. I think, I think we could do that now. You'd yeah. have to manually type in, like if I'm doing a language sample of a student and I have like, this is everything that was said for that student in that hour. Mm -hmm. And then I could even have, this is the language sample, what was modeled to him. I believe right now, if we were to play around with that and throw it into chat GPT and with the right prompt and the right, and the right queuing, I think we could get some pretty useful data out of that. Agreed. And insights and, and an action plan. Like, yeah, here's, yeah. here's your next steps, right? Yep. Uh, yeah, so exciting. That's so exciting. I know um, I'm currently working with a teacher of the deaf and hard of hearing who's using live captioning when he's doing his instruction. We're just having emails right now going back and forth. By the time this episode comes out, we'll have figured out how to actually do it. But to take his instruction record the transcription, get the notes that you're talking about, put it over here, summarize this, and provide that as a study guide to uh, to not just the one person he's doing the instruction with, yeah. but everyone else. Like, hey, I can put this up online. Anyone can go get it. 
So, uh, so much potential here. Aaron, any other final thoughts? Other people, other things people should know, misconceptions we should break down. What What do you want the world to know about uh, the work you're doing um, and the work that you're supporting? Just, I think all, I'm going to throw it out there. Always think with a systems level approach. If if you're doing great work, and and I know the people on the podcast are doing working hard, and if they're doing something that's exceptional. My old, my question is always, how do we grow that? Okay, if that if what what can we do to take whatever you're doing that's awesome and expand that? What is the force multiplier? What is the gracious professionalism that we can use to share that across the AT world and, and build build all our capacities so that we can help individuals with disabilities? I mean, that's that for me is the the main goal and i've loved working in this community the at professional community because we are so gracious with things we do want to share we want to collaborate we we don't want to you know uh, keep everything behind proprietary walls we we just want to help individuals and we have great communities to do that awesome i'll drop the mic aaron yeah (laughs) thanks chris this has been fun thanks for thanks for coming on the talk with tech podcast we'll talk to you later soon yeah